0: All right.
1: Welcome back to The Decline of the Western Civilizations. I'm Zach. And I'm Dylan. In our previous installments, we've discussed the career of conquistador Hernan Cortes in New Spain and his failed attempt to establish a Spanish colony in Baja, California.
2: Yeah, but what about the people already living in Baja, Dylan,
1: the indigenous Californians?
2: Uh, How did they feel about Cortes's colony?
1: Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of ethnographic documentation from the Santa Cruz colony. And the Europeans in California that did record their observations did so with the belief that the people they were going to meet were inherently inferior. The conquistadors really failed to engage with the world without falling back onto bigotry. This is the tragedy of prejudice, self-imposed ignorance. The records we have of early interaction between the Spanish and Californians are unfortunately sparse and entirely one-sided. The people of the Americas practiced modes of production that the Spanish judged be inferior to their own. Because these practices in agriculture, architecture, metallurgy, whatever, were judged to be inferior, the European invaders assumed that the people that they harassed and murdered were mentally inferior as well. We judge these people to be nomads, possessed of little intelligence. Francisco de Ulloa, 1539. Uyoa, who was the first European to sail around the Baja California Peninsula, called the land ugly and sterile, and of a wretched aspect. To him, both the people and the land were bestial. Linguistic and cultural barriers unfortunately prevented any meaningful exchanges between Oyoa and the Californians during the voyage. And without meaningful documentation, we don't even know for sure what cultural groups in Baja California Uyoa was trash-talking. From his handful of encounters with the inhabitants of Baja, Uyoa gives an account of peoples who fished and hunted small game with bows and spears. They carried their possessions in woven nets and transported water across stretches of desert in seal skin bags. Although Uyoa wrote that the people went naked, he also observed that individuals adorned themselves with white and black pigment. And to his dismay, Uoya found that the indigenous peoples of Baja California were willing to fight to keep the belligerent strangers out of their settlements. You'd, you'd think they'd bring a scribe or someone to you know, take better notes. But due to the uninviting description of Baja written by Uyoa, no further serious attempts would be made to explore the interior of the peninsula for almost a century. That being the case, we'll shift our narrative once more to the nascent political entity called New Spain. So what's the new news in New Spain? In 1539, the name buzzing on the lips of the viceroy's court was Francisco Vasquez de Coronado y Luján. I've heard of Coronado, yeah,
2: but uh, more for its surf and sunny San Diego beach vibes. Is he just another conquistador?
1: Not quite. Coronado didn't leave for the Americas with a military expedition in mind. Francisco Vázquez de Coronado was one of the men who came to New Spain after the conquest in the entourage of the Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza.
2: He's a member of the second wave of Spanish colonists. These guys who aren't necessarily combat conquistadors, they're, you know, bureaucrats, they're, you know, government officials. And now that the bulk of the bloody conquest is over, these men will handle the administrations of subjugated territories.
1: Francisco Vásquez de Coronado happened to be a childhood friend of Viceroy Mendoza. After Mendoza had been selected by Emperor Carlos to serve as Viceroy, Viceroy Mendoza in turn set up his friend Coronado as governor of the Kingdom of Nueva Galicia, a territory originally subjugated by the brutal Nuno Beltran de Guzman, which comprised an area which includes the present Mexican states of Aguascalientes, Colima, Jalisco, Nayarit, and Zacatecas. This huge territory is
2: just handed to Francisco? He didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to conquer or even, like, prove it just to win it. You know, is, is Coronado's position
1: owed completely to nepotism? Uh, where is this guy's, you know, his paperwork? Apparently, a close relationship with the viceroy and an acceptably noble pedigree were the only qualifications for the position. Once in New Spain... Coronado expanded his social network by marrying into a wealthy conquistador family. Through his marriage to Beatriz de Estrada, Coronado acquired a large estate and a network with which to call upon more favors. Sounds like he did alright for himself. Yes, but humility and contentment are not the defining character traits of the men of this era. Greed and ambition, animating forces in Cortez and Guzman, are also beginning to take hold of Coronado. I, I see where this
2: is going. Yeah. Coronado looks around, and, and he sees he's a member of the Spanish nobility, governor of Nueva Galicia, owner of a huge personal estate. And it's just not enough.
1: So Coronado and Viceroy Mendoza hatch a plan to conquer the treasure-laden city of Cibola, far to the north of Mexico. Cibola!
2: Cibola? What what is this fascinating word? Uh, Is is this name also some, you know, medieval romance uh, name or something like this? Is is, is it like California? Can you please deconstruct it for me?
1: Well, the etymology of cibola is unclear. The word was first documented in Spanish-occupied America in the 1530s. Like the Amazon island of California, there was no such place as cibola. Not as the Spaniards imagined it. The concept of the wealthy city of Cibola was based on the tales of the Pueblo peoples of the American Southwest, recorded and reimagined by Marcos de Niza, a Franciscan missionary. Niza wrote that he had seen a great settlement from a distance, but never had visited the impossibly
3: rich city himself. I pursued my journey until in sight of Cibola, which is situated on a plain at the skirt of a round hill. It has the appearance of a very beautiful town, the best I've ever seen in these parts. The house is the style that the Indians had described to me, all of stone, with stories and terraces, as well as I could see from the hill where I was able to view it. The city is bigger than Mexico City. Marcos de Niza, Discovery of the Seven Cities, 1539.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, wasn't Tenochtitlan, you know, uh, Mexico City... Wasn't that the largest pre-industrial city in the Americas?
1: Zach, you're, you're not at all wrong. Friar Marcos was. His account was all secondhand information and elaboration. The Puebloan peoples north of New Spain did live in densely populated settlements with multi-story dwellings, just like Friar Marcos wrote. But we know for certain that none of the
2: Puebloan towns could have matched Mexico City in size or for trade goods. So the viceroy and Coronado plot to conquer Cibola, a city that only
1: exists in the writings of a single man. Right, which you know, to to be fair, was as about as much information as Cortez had when he sailed from Cuba. But you said earlier that Coronado wasn't a conquistador. He isn't. Not really. I don't mean to uh, put him in the same ranks as Cortez. He's a poser. Coronado was injured in his first clash with indigenous Americans. And after that skirmish, he never led men into battle again. And he wouldn't conquer anything. None of the villages that he squatted in were drawn into the Spanish domain. He discovered no riches and ultimately wasted his wife's, his own, and Viceroy Mendoza's investments in the expedition.
2: What a magnificent failure.
1: For what he intended to accomplish, if we're going by those metrics, then yes, he was a magnificent failure. But he was responsible for sending the first group of Europeans into what is now the state of Kansas. So, uh, for any Kansas listeners out there, that is a sort of an accomplishment to celebrate. And in his 2,000 miles of wandering, did Coronado make
2: it out to the beaches in San Diego, or...?
1: Coronado never made it that far west. And it won't be by following Coronado's misadventures that we'll get into California. For that, we'll need to trail after the support side of the Coronado Expedition. Support side? uh, Like logistics? This side story properly begins months before the 1540 Coronado Expedition headed north. Viceroy Mendoza, not being a total idiot, appointed a conquistador named Melchior Diaz to scout ahead of the Coronado Expedition to confirm the reports of Cibola. Melchior Diaz was a veteran of the horrifying slaving campaigns of Guzman, and he was likely one of the Spaniards most familiar with the northern frontier. Finally, someone's thinking ahead.
2: I I, I get that the government is staffed with, you know, personal appointees, the yes-men. It's reassuring that someone's kind of strategic, has put some
1: thought to this. Melchior Diaz traveled south of the Pueblo community of Hawiku the same settlement that the Spanish would later name Cibola. But Melchior Diaz saw nothing that corresponded with the architecture or vast population that Friar Marcos had described. Shit, that's a bit anticlimactic. Diaz rode south and sent notice to the Viceroy regarding his lack of discoveries, but this letter arrived weeks too late to prevent Coronado from setting off. Vasquez de Coronado had hit the road with Friar Marcos, convinced that they were marching towards a great city. So, Diaz is heading south back to New Spain, Vasquez
2: de Coronado head north. Do these two groups meet on the trail?
1: They do. On March 28th, 1540, Diaz informs Coronado of his findings and then falls in with Coronado's party. So, combined now, how many individuals are involved in Coronado's gamble? Oh, a good number. Over 300 Spaniards, a thousand Tlaxcalan infantry, and at least 300 enslaved human beings. The Tlaxcalans are still steadfast allies of the Spanish and received special privileges from the Spanish occupiers denied to other indigenous groups. And even though Melchior Diaz had
2: the eyewitness account to explain that there was no great city,
1: Coronado isn't prepared to stop and reconsider this enterprise? Diaz's findings contradicted Fire Marcos' account, and put the entire venture on questionable footing. Fire Marcos may have had more social cachet than Diaz, so Coronado may have been more predisposed to believe Marcos. If Marcos is right, Coronado
2: is about to become a very rich and powerful man. If uh, Diaz is right, then Coronado has just made a very serious error. At this point, Coronado had already spent his money and the investment had been made, you know. I, I think that even if Coronado found Diaz credible, he would rather believe in the possibility of conquest. The die is cast, and it's too late to consider backing out. Even with the new nagging uncertainty,
1: Coronado is determined to be a conqueror. The departure of the Coronado Land Party also triggered the launch of a complimentary seaborne force which would sail up the western coast of North America to resupply and reinforce Coronado's land party at the Port of Cibola. Port of Cibola. suerte, dudes. Two ships under the command of a Hernando de Alarcán would sail to Cibola and rendezvous with Coronado. Unfortunately for all parties involved Alarcon set off before the return of Francisco de Ulloa. That's Ulloa, who was the first European to sail
2: up the Gulf and, and surmise that the Colorado River Delta wasn't a strait into the Western Sea, and that therefore California was not an island. We'll return to the seaborne expedition in a few moments. So, how did the Spaniards handle it when they get to Hawiku and realize that Brother Marcos has misled them?
3: When they saw the first pueblo, Cibola, such were the curses that some of them hurled at Brother Marcos that may God not allow them to reach his ears. Pedro de Castañera de Najera, The Journey of Coronado, 1540 to 1542.
1: <laughs> not well. The Spanish force was already scumming to starvation by the time that they reached the adobe walled settlement. The Zuni people of Hawiku wanted nothing to do with them and refused the strangers from entry into their community. Coronado responded by ordering a savage attack on the Zuni which killed men, women, and children. Captives were questioned and tortured regarding the location of hidden riches which existed only in the Spaniards' imaginations. Food stores were rapidly consumed by Coronado's forces. You mentioned that Coronado's men were starving. In my mind, I
2: have this image of this awful battle for survival. The Spanish cause is completely abhorrent and would I never try to defend it? But I can imagine the desperation of these starving men. But the Zuni, on the other hand, you know, they wake up to this massive foreign force, who I'm sure are threatening them into giving up all that they have. You know, you got to give to these alien invaders. This is an awful struggle.
1: Francisco Vasquez de Coronado y Lujan, the man with no military experience, led the assault on Hawiku personally. For his effort. He received an arrow through the foot and was bludgeoned unconscious by stones lobbed by the Pueblo's defenders. The battle would be his one and only experience in combat. The adobe town was won, but a city with riches to rival Mexico was not. Coronado's troops, Spanish and Tlaxcalan alike, would continue to harass Puebloan settlements to the east in a number of bloody encounters in their search for cities and riches which did not exist. So, how long did they keep looking for Cibola? The Coronado expedition spent two years tramping across 2,000 miles of central North America. In addition to making life miserable for the people they encountered, they became the first Europeans to view the Grand Canyon and the first to visit the future American states of Arizona, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Kansas. After the bloody conflict at Hawiku, Coronado ordered Melchior Diaz to escort the fabulous Marcos back to Mexico. Yeah,
2: get out of here! <laughs> <laughs> en
1: route back to Mexico, Diaz split with the escort party and ordered a contingent of men to see to the safe return of Friar Marcos. Unburdened, Melchior Diaz turned west with 25 Spaniards and a group of indigenous Opata auxiliaries and a herd of sheep in tow.
2: Wait, what? They've. They've been herding sheep this whole time? I... I thought you said they were starving earlier.
1: I don't know, man. I'm just going by what's in the historical documents. Uh, maybe they stole them. Maybe they were saving the sheep for a special occasion.
2: Uh, special sheep. So, what on earth does Melchior Diaz think he's doing? Uh, Where... where is he going with this flock?
1: He is, uh, herding west to rendezvous with Hernando de Alarcón and locate the Port of Cibola. It is unlikely that Diaz believes in the port, but he does know that Alarcón sailed up the west coast, and that if he heads west long enough, he will hit the ocean.
2: Good as plan as any. Where is Melchior Diaz when he
1: decides
2: to find the sea? How far is he from the the Gulf of California from his location?
1: How The Zuni Pueblo, first visited by the Spanish, is about uh, halfway up the current Arizona-New Mexico state border. From that distance, it's over 350 miles to the sea, where Hernando Alarcon had been waiting. (laughs) He he made it! uh, Way to sail, Alarcon! Alarcon had made his way to the Colorado River Delta and correctly assessed as Ulloa had before him, that he was at the mouth of a river. Leaving his three ocean-going vessels in the Gulf, Alarcon led two smaller crafts with 20 personnel up the river he named Rio de Nuestra Señora de Buena Guia, the river of our mother, the good guide. Thankfully for Alarcon, one of the indigenous American auxiliaries he had brought with him, probably from what is now Sonora, knew a language also known to some of the peoples who lived along the Colorado River. Through this individual, whose name was unfortunately not recorded, Alarcon was able to make peaceful contact with the indigenous peoples of the Delta.
0: I desired to know what people lived on the banks of this river, and understood by this man that it was inhabited by people of 23 languages, and these bordering upon the river, besides others not far off. There were besides these 20 thing single-language groups, other peoples whom our translator did not know. Hernando Alarcan.
1: Who were these natives? They were likely the ancestors of the Cocopa, a human-speaking group that still lives along the Colorado River today.
0: This is a mighty people, well-featured and without grossness. These Indians came decked in many different ways. Some came with paintings that covered their faces all over. Some had their faces half-covered, but all besmoached with coal, and everyone as it pleased him best. Their hair is cut in front, and behind it hangs down to their waists. The women go naked and wear great wreaths of feathers behind them, and in front, painted and glued together, and their hair is like the men's. There were among these Indians three or four men in women's apparel. Hernando Alarcón.
2: Um, men and women's apparel. I believe that these are what are now called two-spirit
1: people. They are. This is likely one of the earliest writings recording two-spirit peoples in North America.
2: Two-spirit peoples are a type of third gender, people who are culturally identified as being neither male or female gendered. Two-spirit people, be they male or female sexed, take on attributes of both male and female genders and are able to fulfill a unique role within their societies. Some traditions required individuals to adopt the dress and gendered work of the opposite sex. There were likely as many variants of being two-spirit person as there were American cultural
1: groups. The nuance of the two-spirit people was too much for Alarcon. Based on his limited worldview, he referred to them in his writings as sodomites. The expression of a non-binary gender system was inherently sinful to the 16th century Christian observer. I think
2: I've learned that we can only expect so much from the 16th century. Compassion and understanding were not prioritized characteristics. But there's a communication here, right? Finally, native Californians and Spaniards are talking to each other.
0: To the one who asked me what we were, I answered that we were Christians and that we had come from afar to see them.
2: Great start! Uh, Maybe if they communicate openly and honestly, there'll be maybe an opportunity for learning and mutual respect.
0: Answering the question about who had sent me, I said I was sent by the sun.
2: This is not what I was expecting!
0: He began again to ask me how the sun had sent me, seeing it went aloft in the sky and never stood still, and seeing that these many years neither he nor their old men had ever seen such as we were, of whom they never had any kind of knowledge, and that the sun till this hour had never sent any other. I answered him that it was true that the sun had made his course aloft in the sky, and did never stand still, yet nevertheless, that they might perceive that in this going down and rising in the morning he came near the earth where his dwelling was, and that they had ever saw him come out of one place." He had made me in that land and country whence he came. Alarcon.
2: Whoa, okay, so he just keeps digging and digging. What, what a nice native dude to just, like, listen to this total bullshit story this guy's coming up with.
1: The only account of this interaction was written by Alarcon as a report of his doing to his superiors. I imagine that there were uh, varying degrees of credulity in this audience, I don't know how much the people of the Delta really bought into his story. They could have accepted that the Spaniards, uh, being from the sun, was simply part of their own origin tale. Regardless of how many different people along the river bought into the solar origin story, the Alacon party was an exciting novelty that offered previously unknown trade goods.
2: I think there must have been such a gulf between how these two groups interpreted the situation. Bizarrely clothed beings suddenly appear from downriver, and they're willing to trade, you know, beets for bread. And then there's no women with them either, and they also claim to be from the sun. You know, I, I guess they're they're pretty nice guys, coming from the hot sun and all.
1: Alarcon is thought to have navigated as far upriver as modern-day Yuma, Arizona paddling and towing the boats from the shore when necessary due to the shallowness of the river. <laughs>
2: well, unless he's ready to paddle across Arizona, Alarcon's not going to make it to Hawiku.
1: I'm not exactly sure how. Uh, his accounts isn't too clear on this, but through translation and pantomime, Alarcon ascertained from the people he met that Cibola was a ten days march east from his current position. Having failed to rendezvous with Coronado's forces, and knowing that he had three ships anxiously awaiting his return down the gulf, Alarcon decided not to hunt for Cibola and return south to his ships. He left California with an indigenous woman and another indigenous individual whose fates are unfortunately lost to history. No rendezvous with Melchior Diaz? Unfortunately not, but before leaving, Alarcon had a crucifix raised, on which he had carved a brief message as a testament to his presence on the river.
2: I really can't get over the absurdity of Alarcon's story. He's a child of the sun, sent to Earth on a temporary visit to shell out beads. I wonder if this is something he's been, you know, working on, like he's writing it out, hoping to try it out on these indigenous people. Like
1: he's been workshopping it for a while?
2: Yeah, right, yeah, yes as a writer, because he's a
1: amateur writer. He's a stand-up it, conquistador. I mean,
2: right, but it's also such a flimsy story that I, I can't believe he, he just made it up on the spot. He's definitely not concerned with the continuity of this lie, and whether or not future Spaniards are also going to pick it up and continue this, you know, pretend story being from the sun. And, I mean, this is totally wild. It, So, did Diaz and the sheep find Alarcon's crucifix?
1: Melchior Diaz made the remarkable progress across the current state of Arizona on his way to the sea and was delayed only at the natural barrier of the Colorado River. Diaz, again in the grand European tradition of naming things that already have names, called the Colorado River Rio del Tizon, or in English, Firebrand River. Diaz was apparently able to learn from the peoples he met, and without the aid of a translator, that men like him, Spaniards, had been seen downriver.
2: Wow, the Spaniards must have been pretty good at playing charades, if you ask me. I mean, either that or these historical accounts are overly generous in regarding to the competence of these men.
1: True. And we shouldn't ignore context and potential bias on the part of any of our sources. In this case... Uh, Spanish authors were writing about Spanish explorations to a Spanish audience. The account of the Coronado expedition I've been using was written by Pedro de Castañeda, who was a soldier in the Coronado expedition. His knowledge of Melchior Diaz's movements would have come second hand. The account itself was written some 20 years after the Coronado expedition returned to Mexico. It is very possible that he fudged the truth in order to craft a more interesting story. That's history for you, folks. A collection of recollections
2: from years after the fact that ought to be taken with a huge grain of
1: salt. The Diaz party followed the course of the river south and encountered a tree on which Alarcon's inscription was found. Didn't Alarcon say he carved it on a cross? That's an interesting contradiction, isn't it? Alarcon says it was a cross, Castaneda, a tree. Maybe it was a tree with a plank nailed across it. Maybe Alarcon left more than one marker. We'll never know for sure. Quien sabe?
2: More fodder for the idea that Pedro de Castañeda is an unreliable narrator.
1: Alarcon had come and gone three months before Diaz arrived at the river in late 1540. Near where they had found Alarcon's note, Diaz and company constructed rafts and crossed the Colorado. Making Melchior Diaz the first white guy to enter California!
3: (laughs) And what
2: does he do in California?
3: One day, a greyhound belonging to one of the soldiers chased some sheep, which they were taking along for food. When the captain noticed this, he threw his lance at the dog while his horse was running so that it stuck up in the ground. And, not being able to stop his horse, he went over the lance so that it nailed him through the thighs and uh, the iron coming out behind, uh, rupturing his bladder. After this, the soldiers turned back. He lived about twenty days during which they proceeded with great difficulty on account of the necessity of carrying him. Pedro de Castañera de Najera, The Journey of Coronado, 1540-1542. to 1542.
2: See, why do they gotta add this bizarre anecdote about, about some guy's horrifically drawn-out death, but very little notation about the wilderness or some important features of this
1: extreme expedition? Diaz's men returned to Cibola and reported to Coronado what they discovered.
2: Nothing encouraging, furthermore crushing any hope for resupplying from the port of Cibola.
1: Coronado, having found no riches, returned to Mexico City in disgrace in 1542. The costly expedition bankrupted the would-be conquistador, and he faced charges of cruelty towards his subjects for his brutal occupation of the and settlements. He died in Mexico in 1554. What have we learned? Is this
2: another exhausting episode of Spanish slip-ups leading to unjustified murder?
1: We learned a lot today. We learned that there was an amazing diversity of cultures along the Colorado River with over 32 languages spoken. That figure dwarfs all except the most cosmopolitan of Eurasian regions at the time. They had good sense to doubt Alarcone's story that he came from the sun, but They were also willing
2: to tolerate the outlandish foreigners on account of their novelty.
1: Alarcon reported that the peoples he met on the Colorado shared cakes made of maize and bread made from mesquite. What about barbecue? Mesquite also grows an edible bean pot. I I just found that out. The beans can be ground into a flour and then baked into a bread. Ah, I'd try it. Yeah. Uh, Can we try to make this? Yeah, let's do that this month. That'd be cool. Mesquite trees grow throughout northern Mexico and the American Southwest. In a number that can support nomadic groups who hunt and gather to acquire resources. But corn
2: is something that you cannot forage for. It requires a knowledge of agriculture uh, to, to raise the corn, and it needs to be maintained. It, it requires sedentism. It's possible that the maize was a trade good, however, but I'd guess that the presence of maize, perhaps the people living
1: along the Colorado River, practiced agriculture. If the human-speaking peoples of the 16th century did practice agriculture, then we can extrapolate that they were at least semi-sedentary. Archaeological evidence suggests that maize had been processed in the region for centuries. A settled people practicing
2: agriculture with a large population. Alarcón said that an
1: infinite number of people would turn out every time he stopped along the river. Alarcón used descriptors like infinite great squads, and described encounters with 1,000 armed men.
2: Even if that number is inflated, it's clear that Alarcón wanted to give the impression that the area was densely populated. Thinking about Alarcón's relatively benign expedition, it really contrasts with the experience of Melchior Diaz's party. It seems like they were able to coast off goodwill built up by Alarcón, but quickly ended up antagonizing the people.
1: Alarcón apparently was very earnest in his efforts to communicate peacefully, and people responded positively to that.
2: And Diaz had served as a soldier under the brutal conquistador Niño Beltrán de Guzmán, who we know... You know, not so good. But, you know, maybe Diaz was just an unlikable person, you know. uh, Like, he was already party to burning villages and bloodshed before he came over to Mexico. Uh, Also, most likely had awful racist ideas about the Americans he met. Were there any lasting influences on California from the Coronado expedition?
1: What jumps to my mind are the goods brought by Alarcon to trade with. There are the usual goods, glass beads and little crosses given out, but Alarcon began to run out of these items before he decided to turn back. No tchotchkes, no bueno. So near the end of Alarcon's account, he records that he gave away chickens and seeds.
2: Those are some well-traveled chickens.
1: Peoples of North America had already domesticated turkeys by this time, so they could probably conceptually wrap their heads around keeping a bird around now as food for later but the chicken is also a whole new type of bird that they've never ever seen before. That's pretty exciting stuff. It's possible that the groups which did receive chickens and seeds immediately put them to use and incorporated them into their regular diet and culture. Without written records, it is hard to say, though. The next account of the area uh, from the Spanish comes nearly a century later. The chickens and European plants described at that time could have also been acquired later uh, through trade with people in direct contact with the Spanish. Then it's a real possibility that the most enduring legacy of the Western
2: Coronado expedition was the spread of disease.
1: Members of Alarcon and Diaz's groups could have also brought old world diseases with them. Diaz's sheep and dogs could also have been disease vectors. The Colorado River Delta region tainted by influenza.
2: What is sorely lacking from the story is the point of view of the human people.
1: Unfortunately, we don't have any first-hand accounts of the meeting from an indigenous Californian. Again, we've hit one of the unfortunate limitations of written history.
2: Well, all right.
1: What about Coronado Beach, huh?
2: The the beach in San Diego is named after
1: Coronado. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, it's not. Oh, it's not. It's named for the nearby Coronado Islands. On a clear day, you can see them from the beach in Tijuana. Now, I think this will be actually be a good place for us to pause our historical journey for now. We'll actually discuss the first Europeans to spot the Coronado Islands in our next episode.
2: And until then, thank you for listening
1: to... Decline, Decline of the, the Western Civilizations! civilizations. You can find more episodes of Decline of the Western Civilizations by searching for us in iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or going to our website, declineofthewesterncivilizations.com. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. Tremendous thanks to the musical group Los Californios, who allowed us to use their renditions of old California melodies. Have a comment, correction, or contribution? Email us at contact at declineofthewesterncivilizations.com. The decline of the Western civilizations is a Tango Tongo Traduction.